Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. The incidence of stroke rises steeply with age, but recent trends have shown a rise in stroke in younger patients under the age of 45 years of age. One of the main causes of stroke in the young is vasculitis, which can be devastating in terms of productivity and quality of life. In today's episode of Neural Pathways, we're discussing stroke in the young and homing in on identification and management of vasculitis as its cause. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Abbas Karal join me for today's conversation. Dr. Kroll is a cerebrovascular immunologist in the Cerebrovascular Center in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Abbas, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's get things started. In most young people, the chance of having a stroke seems like an impossibility. Unfortunately, this is not the case. Can you start today's conversation by defining the young stroke population and addressing some of the causes that contribute to stroke in this population? Uh, You know, stroke in young adults, uh, there is no specific definition uh, that is agreed upon for what we call young adults. Some stroke registries have taken patients 15 to 45 years of age, whereas uh, if you look at the Helsinki stroke, young adult stroke registry, they've studied patients up to 49 years of age. So overall, uh, you know, for clinical purposes, we take patients under the age of 50 as young adults for purposes of uh, ischemic stroke. Now, as far as causes of, of stroke in young adults. Interestingly, although we think that there are vascular risk factors are only specific to older adults, there has certainly been a significant rise over the past two to three decades in uh, premature atherosclerotic vascular risk factors in young adults as well. And just like older adults, young adults also have uh, an increase in cardiovascular risk factors, including hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, atrial fibrillation, uh, particularly in the fourth uh, decade of life. Valvular heart disease uh, is another common cause. Obesity, congenital heart disease, and lifestyle risk factors like tobacco use, physical inactivity, sedentary lifestyles, and poor dietary habits, illicit drug use, for example. And then Causes that are more specific to younger adults can be classified as particularly some gender-specific causes. For example, in females, we see that the use of contraception, uh, particularly estrogen-containing contraception and pregnancy, uh, can be associated with an increased risk of stroke as well. Secondly, patients with migraines are also uh, noted to be at a higher risk of stroke. And then there are causes associated with particularly cryptogenic stroke or anatomical defects of the heart, for example, patent form and ovale, which is a cause of cryptogenic stroke in patients less than 60 years of age. Other than that, younger stroke adults are at a higher risk of stroke from inherited thrombophilias and, and hypercoagulability disorders, including uh, factor V Leiden mutation, prothrombin gene mutations, antithrombin-3, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, sickle cell disease, hematologic malignancies, metabolic syndrome. And then last but not least, uh, a very important 
etiology of stroke in young adults is cerebral arteriopathy or vasculopathy. And that includes both inflammatory and non-inflammatory arteriopathies with non-inflammatory arteriopathies, uh, including things like moya-moya disease, neck vessel dissections, uh, fibromuscular dysplasia, and then some of the inflammatory vasculitides, including both primary and secondary vasculitides, which are numerous, uh, particularly secondary causes, including giant cell arteritis, tachyasu arteritis, radiation-induced arteritis, to, to mention a few. So if we move away from ischemic stroke, uh, what about intracerebral hemorrhage, subarachnoid stroke in the young? So the, the two entities that we see subarachnoid hemorrhage in younger adults is uh, aneurysmal subarach and non-aneurysmal subarach. The aneurysmal subarach is a subarachnoid hemorrhage particularly seen in patients who have a family history of uh, intracerebral aneurysms or polycystic kidney disease or connective tissue disorders. And the other entity in which we see subarachnoid hemorrhage in younger adults is uh, reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome, or RCVS, which can present with subarachnoid hemorrhage as well. Well, you know, I never wanted to be uh, old, but I guess uh, when I'm hearing all this for the young, I feel better being old and that I made it through. <laughs> as I always tell the residents on service, uh, I always quote the great uh, Canadian uh, strokeologist C. Miller Fisher who said that we learn neurology stroke by stroke. Absolutely. As time goes on. So let's move on more specifically. You discussed it very briefly, but let's uh, hone in a little bit on vasculitis. Can you take us through the etiologies? And again, I know you mentioned it briefly on primary versus secondary vasculitis. Absolutely. You know, the way I, I describe classification of cerebral vasculitis is I think the, the best way to understand it is to classify it both based on firstly inflammatory versus non-inflammatory arteriopathies and then further particularly in the inflammatory arteriopathies whether or not it's a primary versus a secondary uh, vasculopathy uh, so when when a vasculopathy is inflammatory um, we call it vasculitis or, or arteritis and so um, vasculitis can be classified as primary versus secondary and then further classified as uh, based on vessel involvement to either large vessel versus small or medium vessel disease. So probably the, the, the most important classification once you classify a vasculopathy as inflammatory then further defining whether or not it's primary versus secondary is the most important thing. And, and secondary vasculitides are, are numerous. And basically, when you see a patient with a suspected vasculitis, really the workup that you're going to do is primarily uh, looking for secondary causes because primary CNS vasculitis by default is a diagnosis of exclusion once you've excluded all secondary causes. So the most important question to ask is, how do we go about thinking about vasculitis? When should we suspect vasculitis, right? It, it's important to, to note, you know, when we have the, the right clinical presentation, you know, a younger patient with, say, headaches, a subacute encephalopathy, a subacute decline, 
and uh, recurrent ischemic strokes that really don't fit in one specific cerebrovascular territory, uh, and you have other constitutional symptoms, that is when to think that there's something inflammatory going on. So the initial uh, diagnostic tests of choice that sort of leads us to making a, a diagnosis of a vasculopathy first is, you know, an MRI brain showing that there are new ischemic infarcts, and then some sort of vessel imaging, be it a CTA or MRA, uh, that can demonstrate if there is a vasculopathy at all. Oftentimes, large and medium-sized vessels you'll be able to identify on a CTA or MRA. However, smaller vessels, uh, particularly vessel calibers that are a couple hundred micrometers in diameter, the, the tertiary and quaternary branches, are better visualized on uh, cerebral angiography or DSA. And so once you have vessel imaging showing that there are vessel irregularities and CT or MRI evidence of new acute infarcts, what you established thus far is that there is some sort of vasculopathy. You still have not diagnosed whether or not this is inflammatory or not. And that's a common mistake I see clinicians making. You know, someone will do an angiogram on someone and see vascular irregularities and say, this is, you know, suggestive of vasculitis. All we can tell on an angiogram or any vessel imaging is whether or not there is a vasculopathy or not. The presence of vasculitis requires either a presence of an inflammatory CSF or a tissue diagnosis to support that there is some inflammation going on. Or uh, other than that, if particularly in secondary causes, elevated inflammatory markers, other uh, evidence of inflammatory uh, signs and symptoms. So basically, once you've, you've established a diagnosis that now what we're dealing with is, is an inflammatory vasculitis, that is when then you want to further decide whether or not this is now a primary versus a secondary vasculitis. So when should we refer a patient to see a specific cerebrovascular immunologist like yourself? Great question. I think particularly when we're suspecting strokes of unknown ideology, when we have vascular irregularities, again, we're not specifically asking that you know you must obtain CSF or demonstrate that there is inflammation. Obviously, any arteriopathy, you should start thinking of you know whether or not this is inflammatory or not. But particularly when you have evidence of inflammatory CSF and vascular irregularities in a somewhat uh, young person who otherwise does not fit in any of the TOS criteria uh, of either you know a large vessel athro or cardioembolic cause, those are the patients you should highly consider referring to a vasculitis specialist further. And what percentage of these patients do you think end up getting a biopsy or requiring a biopsy? That's an excellent question. A brain biopsy still remains the gold standard of diagnosis for cerebral vasculitis. However, to, to be very specific, uh, we try to get a brain biopsy in, in every patient we can. However, in patients where a biopsy is either not possible or we think that the vessels involved are very focal or deep and not approachable by a brain biopsy, or we may have an inconclusive brain biopsy. In those settings, we try to use other adjunct diagnostic tests. And those include particularly, uh, you know, in the cases of a secondary systemic vasculitis, uh, other systemic inflammatory markers, a PET-CT to diagnose or assess for other systemic inflammatory stigmata. And one diagnostic imaging tool that I have become a really big fan of in my clinical practice and research is vessel wall imaging. 
it's it's a great adjunct tool. Again, not not something that is 100% specific or can be used as a as a gold standard yet, but it is a great adjunct tool when added onto your clinical findings, your MRI brain, and your vascular irregularities on whatever vessel imaging you have. When you're able to correlate that with vessel wall imaging and demonstrate inflammatory changes or concentric vessel wall enhancement in vessels that you coincidingly see focal stenotic disease in the setting of an inflammatory CSF, that can really help increase the sensitivity and specificity of diagnosing a vasculitis. Again, it won't it won't help you differentiate primary versus secondary, but it will help you establish inflammatory from non-inflammatory causes. Is there a go-to area in the brain that you biopsy or what is required with the tissue? What do you need to get? Do you need blood vessels? You need leptomeninges? What do you need? Yeah. So the best possible diagnostic sample would be an area where there is inflammatory arterial involvement without an established infarct yet, because oftentimes people make the mistake of getting a biopsy tissue from a, an area that has already an established infarct around a, an inflamed vessel. And most of the time, all you do is come back with just necrotic tissue. So the most ideal sample would be a non-infarcted tissue where there is vessel wall inflammation. And, and there have been studies showing that if you target sites with established vessel wall enhancement, you can increase the yield of your biopsy. The sample that you're looking for is a good one centimeter thick slice of tissue, which should include the meninges and the brain parenchyma, and also contain arterial vessels uh, as well. Now, when we see particularly that there is mostly involvement of eloquent cortex and we cannot biopsy that site, then if the process is seemingly diffuse, particularly if you have a, a floridly diffuse inflammatory process, then an alternative site can be the non-dominant hemisphere temporal tip biopsy, which can also be helpful in some cases. So we've made the diagnosis of vasculitis. How do we treat them? Just like any inflammatory condition, uh, an inflammatory vasculitis is treated with anti-inflammatories. So the first thing, once we've ruled out a secondary cause, either you know we're treating primary CNS vasculitis or we've identified a secondary cause and we're treating you know that specific secondary cause, uh, steroids are often the, the first mainstay of treatment. And we oftentimes start pulse-dose steroids up front for three to five days, followed by an oral prednisone taper. And once we've established that this is an inflammatory vasculitis and, and is, is responsive to anti-inflammatory treatment, then beyond that, it really depends on what the underlying cause is. So for example, primary CNS vasculitis, the most studied therapeutic approach is the use of cyclophosphamide. Uh, so we basically use, after pulse dose steroids, uh, we induce uh, with cyclophosphamide and continue oral prednisone along with the induction of cyclophosphamide. And once uh, we've passed through the maintenance phase, uh, that's when we uh, start other steroid-sparing agents. So again, there's a little bit of difference in practices, but technically my approach is steroids and cytoxin up front. And then once you finish the maintenance of uh, cytoxin, you switch over to oral steroid-sparing agents like uh, mycophenolate, for example. And then you continue those as you've tapered off steroids. Whereas some secondary causes, for example, giant cell arthritis, some recent literature published out of uh, Mass General basically showed 
that the use of secondary immunologic agents, particularly tocilizumab for giant cell arthritis, which is an IL-6 inhibitor, uh, was associated with a significant reduction in relapse of giant cell arthritis and a lower cumulative dose of steroids used over, over time. So depending on basically what you're treating, sometimes there are specific agents, for example, neurosarcoid-associated vasculopathy or vasculitis, steroids plus infliximab is the mainstay of choice. So steroids up front, and then depending on whether primary or secondary and what secondary cause, there are targeted therapies for several of the vasculitides. So just a couple of quick follow-up questions. If I'm going to put somebody on uh, steroids for primary vasculitis, do I give them a gram of IV methylprednisolone or 60 of pred is fine to start for pulsing? Yes. Yeah, so for pulsing, we usually do one gram of IV solumedrol, particularly these are patients who are admitted to the hospital and are in the inpatient setting. So it's a lot easier to give them pulse dose steroids. So yes, we start off with a gram of IV solumedrol for three to five days, followed by 60 of pred and then taper them gradually by about five milligrams every, every one to two weeks. And your giant cell arteritis do you have a lower age cutoff of where you really just don't see that anymore or everything's a possibility? Uh, you know, normally uh, giant cell arteritis is, is rare, um, less than 50 years of age. But again, nothing's impossible. You know, I've seen GCA in patients 48 years of age, uh, but more, more so, more commonly, less than 50, you should, you should really think and look at other causes first. And how was your year of COVID with this group of patients? Anything new for them? Change your practice? Uh, change the type of diseases you saw? That's an excellent question. You know, with COVID, uh, we certainly saw a rise in COVID-related hypercoagulability and associated stroke, particularly in younger patients. Um, So as you know, COVID can cause uh, stroke by multiple different mechanisms, as we know now, uh, including COVID-induced hypercoagulability as a result of the post-COVID inflammatory response that is um, mounted. In addition to that, COVID also causes cytokine release uh, as as an immune response and also endothelial uh, dysfunction as well. So a combination of these factors certainly has led to uh, an increase of hypercoagulability-related stroke uh, in patients with COVID. I've also seen venous sinus thrombosis um, in about three patients now uh, as a result of COVID. And when we talk about patients with autoimmune diseases or inflammatory conditions with COVID, obviously being put on any of these immunosuppressive medications does automatically put you in a high-risk category for catching any sort of infection, especially COVID. So yes, my practice has really become slightly modified as to when I see someone who has not been vaccinated yet, and particularly when I am thinking about starting immunosuppression on them, the goal is to try to get them vaccinated before long-term immunosuppression is started and or or, you know, at least these people who are on immunosuppression, make sure that they're taking extra precautions to try to prevent uh, getting infected with COVID at all. So lastly, let's talk about uh, your team and the collaborative approach. I'm sure it takes a village uh, to look after stroke in the young with all the varied etiologies that you list. Talk a little bit about the other folks involved with treatment of stroke in the young, not just vasculitis. Certainly. And, you know, I thank you for asking that. I feel very honored and very privileged. And I can say, you know, the the work that I do and the ability 
to help patients, uh, particularly the very complex uh, young stroke patients that I do, I could not have done it without the support of uh, colleagues, particularly one within the Cerebrovascular Center, uh, mentors like Dr. Hussein and Dr. Rasman and others who have really, you know, showed me the ways and helped me build collaborations, particularly uh, what really makes my job and taking care of these patients so enjoyable is, is these very strong collaborations we have. So, for example, um, we see a lot of patients with non-inflammatory arteriopathy, particularly um, patients who develop Moya-Moya disease and uh, ultimately require uh, STAMCA bypasses. And so our collaboration with with neurosurgery colleagues uh, is is significant on that with um, Mark Bain and Peter Rasmussen and also involving uh, the neurocritical care folks, particularly uh, Joao Gomez uh, in that as well. And uh, I also see a lot of patients obviously under the realm of uh, young adult stroke for paradoxical embolism uh, who require PFO closure. And we have a great relationship with cardiothoracic surgeons here at the Cleveland Clinic where the best in the world uh, when it comes to cardiothoracic procedures. And so we have a, a great collaboration where before any patient undergoes PFO closure, they see both you know, a supervascular neurologist and a cardiothoracic surgeon who both agree upon uh, whether or not that patient meets criteria for PFO closure. As far as cerebral vasculitis, uh, you know, I couldn't do the work that I do without collaborations with Dr. Uh, Lynn Calabrese, Rulaha Jali, and other colleagues in rheumatology, uh, Adam Brown, and uh, others as well in the department. Uh, And then infectious disease colleagues also play a significant role in collaborating with us as well, particularly for infectious vasculitides and uh, particularly also uh, patients with neuroromatological diseases, uh, patients who we see together with the sarcoidosis clinic, the SLE clinic. So as you said, it really does take a village. It takes an institution and it takes a a great team of collaborators who really uh, have been a great part of this entire collaboration and and, uh, allow us to provide the excellent clinical care and the services that we provide to our patients. Well, Abbas, thank you for joining me today. This has been most insightful. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you again. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro, or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.